You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 56, The Fruits of Victory. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started today, I have an important announcement. Some of you have complained about ads during the show, which is understandable, no one likes listening to ads, but I do have to have some revenue from this project to keep it going at the quality you've all come to expect. But for those of you who can't abide listening to another Geico ad, I have added a new feature to the show. From now on, anyone who contributes at least $2 a month to our Patreon will have access to an ad-free version of the show. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot c-o-m, and sign up for a monthly contribution. There will be a post on the Patreon page, and you should also receive an email which will contain a special RSS feed. An RSS feed is like the address of the show that will allow your podcasting app to find the ad-free feed. Simply cut and paste that into your podcasting app, and you'll get access to the ad-free version of the show. If you'd rather not pony up $2 a month, that's fine. You can still enjoy the same content, just with a few ads thrown in. Anyway, on with the show. We left off last time in June of 1800, with a major French victory over the Austrians at the Battle of Marengo. This would go down in history as one of the most memorable engagements of Napoleon's entire career. As with many of Bonaparte's victories, there is a major street in Paris named after the battle, and one in New Orleans, Louisiana as well. There are no less than 11 towns and villages in the United States named Marengo, plus one in Canada and one in Australia. Napoleon named his favorite horse after the battle. There's even a dish called chicken marengo, which was popular in the 19th century, supposedly based on the meal Napoleon's chef improvised for him on the night after the battle. When news of the victory reached Paris, the whole city shut down for a day and night of spontaneous celebration. In the working-class districts of the city, people lit bonfires in the squares and danced, drank, and sang into the early hours of the morning scenes reminiscent of the heady, optimistic early days of the Revolution. A Catholic Mass of Thanksgiving was held at Notre Dame Cathedral, which attracted so many congregants that they spilled out of the building and filled the street in front of the church. This was France in 1800, caught between the old and the new, the enduring traditions of the old regime and the radical fervor of the Revolution. 
Just as Bonaparte had hoped, victory brought his popularity to new heights and solidified the regime. His supporters were emboldened, and his critics silenced. Minister of Police Joseph Fouché kept a close eye on public opinion with his network of spies and informers, and he would later remark that with one battle, Napoleon had not only conquered Italy, but France as well. So, suffice it to say, Marengo is a very famous event, and an important part of the Napoleonic legend. But now that we've looked at the battle in detail, you can probably see that in some ways, it doesn't quite fit into the pantheon of Napoleon's great triumphs. Serious lapses in his judgment nearly led to a French defeat. Marengo lasted roughly nine hours, and Napoleon's army was facing near-certain defeat for the first eight of them. If you had to pick a hero of the day, there's no question that it would be General Louis de Say, whose timely arrival and heroic assault snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Perhaps it's fortunate for Napoleon's reputation that de Say did not survive the battle, although the first consul mourned the loss of one of the few men he considered an equal. Napoleon's march over the Alps was a stroke of genius. But once the army arrived in Italy, almost every decision he made was wrong. He never admitted it, not even in private letters, but it seems Napoleon felt some level of shame about his performance during the campaign. As many historians have pointed out, the official version of the story of Marengo changed radically over the years, far more than any of Napoleon's other battles. By the end of his life, Bonaparte was claiming that the French army was not surprised, but had deliberately lured von Melas into a trap, an obviously absurd assertion to anyone who knew the details of the battle. You might say he was lucky to come away with a victory, but historians always have to be careful not to ascribe events to luck when they can be explained by more tangible factors. In the case of Marengo, I think a lot of the credit goes to the superior leadership and organization of the Republican army. The Austrians began the day with a huge advantage, but the surprised French were able to hold them off, and then reconcentrate enough units to turn the tide. If the roles were reversed, I don't think the Austrian army would have been capable of pulling that off. You sometimes see the Habsburg military of this period portrayed as completely incompetent, helpless to resist the triumphant Republicans. I think their performance at Marengo proves quite conclusively that wasn't the case. True, in many ways, the Austrian military was old and outdated. During the 1790s, a military revolution had occurred in France. The other armies of Europe, including the Austrians, had only just begun to contemplate the meaning of that great change, and had yet to adapt to it. However, the gulf between the old regime armies and the French was not so great that they were incapable of taking on the Republicans, and even winning, as we saw in the first year of the war. But the Austrian army did have some real deficiencies compared with their French counterparts, and I think those deficiencies made the difference at Marengo. The first factor that jumps out is leadership. The Austrian commander, Michael von Melas, was 71 years old and in poor health. As you might recall from last time, not even von Melas himself thought he was fit to lead, and most of his subordinates agreed. There simply weren't men like von Melas in positions of authority in the French army. The upheavals of revolution and rigors of constant warfare had weeded out practically all of the officers of that older generation. 
In the Republican Army, men in their 30s and 40s, or even late 20s, commanded armies, corps, and divisions. In the Habsburg forces, talented men of that age were often stuck playing second fiddle to fossils like von Melas. Take, for example, Josef Radetzky von Raditz. At 33 years old, he had already distinguished himself in the field as a brave, decisive leader, and was recognized as a good strategic thinker and student of the art of war. We can see from his later career that he did, in fact, have the skills to become a brilliant general. If he'd been born in France, a man like that would probably already be commanding a corps, or even an army. But in the Austrian military, Rodetsky was still only a staff colonel, subordinated to the less talented 53-year-old chief of staff, Colonel von Zock. The only officer from the younger generation who commanded an army in the Habsburg military was Archduke Charles, and he was the brother of the emperor. Obviously, it wasn't merit alone that had allowed him to rise so high so fast. This was an army in which connections and seniority mattered far more than they did in the French army, and that had an effect on the quality and culture of the officer corps. With better, more dynamic leadership, perhaps the Austrians could have pressed home their attacks earlier in the day and inflicted some serious casualties on the French. Or perhaps they might have kept up their momentum and attacked Napoleon's second line of defense before Dessay arrived to save the day. Meanwhile, the French owed their victory to the initiative of their commanders. Generals Lannes and Dessay began redirecting their units towards the battlefield as soon as they heard the sound of cannon fire, before receiving official orders to do so from Bonaparte. If they had waited, the delay might easily have cost France the battle. This brings us to the second French advantage I'd like to highlight, their clear superiority in doctrine, organization, and operations. Generals in the French army had standing orders to always drop whatever else they were doing and march towards the sound of guns. This could be the crucial factor in an era in which victory usually went to the side that was able to concentrate more of its forces at the decisive point of a battle. As we've discussed in the past, the Republican armies were fast, which made it easier for them to fight this way, maneuvering while spread out, then concentrating quickly for a battle. The more conservative, top-down militaries of the old regime powers did not place this kind of trust in their generals to take initiative and use their own judgment. For example, during the height of the Battle of Marengo, there were around 3,000 Habsburg troops positioned in the Austrian rear to counter a potential threat to their southern flank, which never materialized. If their commander had decided this was a fool's errand and dispatched some of his men to the battlefield around Marengo, who knows what impact they might have had. But this kind of thing was simply not done in the Habsburg armies. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
The French were also experimenting with new forms of military organization that made it easier for Republican generals to operate independently, most notably the corps system. The word corps simply means body in French, and it had been used in military contexts for decades. But it was a vague term, generally referring to any detachment of troops bigger than a division but smaller than an army. It could also be used for an institution within the army, for instance, the Marine Corps in the United States, or the Royal Armored Corps of the British Army, or the generic term Officer Corps, which means all of the officers in a given military. But in the Army of Revolutionary France, the word corps was taking on a new, specific meaning. When Napoleon built the Army of Reserve at Dijon, before Marengo, the bulk of his force was subdivided into three corps, commanded by Generals Victor, Lon, and Tessay. These were standardized units, each of relatively the same size and composition. Napoleon's corps were organized like mini-armies, each with its own detachments of cavalry and artillery, and an independent staff, which managed the corps' affairs and reported back to Napoleon at army headquarters. This meant that Napoleon's three immediate subordinates all had the tools necessary to act independently from one another, even take on an enemy army if necessary, as General Victor was forced to do during the opening stages of the Battle of Marengo. A French general could move his corps relatively freely around the theater of operations, confident that they could take care of themselves, and would be fast enough to move in support of one another in case of an unexpected major engagement with the enemy, as happened at Marengo. The old regime powers had no such system. At Marengo, von Malus's army had no permanent organizational structures that were larger than a battalion, the smallest unit of maneuver and basic building block of any 18th century military, and the army command. We might occasionally talk about a corps or a division in an old regime army of this period, but these were improvised ad hoc formations, which were created, modified, or dissolved on a temporary basis. They were only rarely designed to be capable of independent operations, were not interchangeable with one another, and lacked the organizational sophistication of a French corps. This meant the old regime armies were slower, less coordinated, and less able to adapt to changing circumstances. If you try to imagine Marengo with the roles reversed, a larger, concentrated French army ambushing a detachment from a spread-out Habsburg force, I don't think it would have been possible for the Austrians to salvage the situation the way Napoleon's army did. Looking back over Marengo, I think we might more accurately call it a victory for the French army as an institution, rather than a victory for Napoleon. Bonaparte's boldness and strategic genius in moving the army through the Alps created the conditions for success, but after arriving in Italy, he made a lot of mistakes. However, the French army was so nimble and adaptable, and so much better led, that it was able to compensate for his errors and outfight the Austrians, even under unfavorable circumstances. At around two in the morning on the night of the battle, a staff officer entered Napoleon's quarters and found the first consul, quote, slumbering in an old leather armchair, the fragments of the most modest of meals placed next to him on a simple table. It is in this poor cubbyhole that he enjoyed the charms of the most surprising, most complete victory, which the previous morning he would have found hard to believe. End quote. The mood was quite different at Austrian headquarters. They could scarcely believe what had happened. The Habsburg army held the upper hand all day, 
and by the late afternoon believed the battle was won. Their officers had ordered the bands to play and church bells to ring out in celebration of a victory that was sure to go down in history as one of the empire's greatest. It had taken only an hour for everything to fall apart. By the evening, General Michael von Melas had recovered from his fall and retaken command over his beaten army. Although, as we discussed last time, the degree to which this frail, doddering 71-year-old had ever been in command was up for debate. Colonel von Zach, the army's chief of staff and architect of the Austrian plan, had been taken prisoner when the headquarters was captured at the climax of the battle, leaving the brilliant young Colonel Josef Radetzky in charge of the army staff. Radetzky did his best to organize the retreat, pausing for the occasional angry tirade against von Zach. The two men had never gotten along, and now with the battle lost and von Zach captured, the dam holding back Radetzky's resentment broke, and he cursed von Zach to anyone who would listen, calling him, quote, a ridiculous pedant, scheming, parsimonious, and out of control, with no other resources in himself at the most critical moment other than the blackest and most hideous deceit, end quote. Apparently, many of the other staff officers joined in. Few defended von Zach. The surviving officers of von Melas's army had found their scapegoat, one who was conveniently not around to defend himself. Radetzky even implied von Zach had gotten himself captured on purpose to hide from the shame of failure. Looking at the state of the Austrian army, their frustration is perhaps understandable. Organization had broken down during the hasty retreat from Marengo. Units had become mixed together, officers had become separated from their men, and supplies and logistics were in shambles. One officer described his camp as looking more like a barbarian horde than a modern army. Marengo had been a stunning blow. Just over 30,000 Austrian troops had been engaged in the battle, and around 14,000 had been killed, wounded, or captured roughly 46% of the total. These were staggering losses, but on paper, the Habsburg forces in northwestern Italy should have been able to recover. Over 20,000 Austrian troops in the immediate vicinity had not been engaged in the battle, and there were tens of thousands more potential reinforcements further to the east. In fact, the day after the battle, von Melas's staff actually discussed rallying their men and rushing in fresh troops for another attack against Napoleon. But this idea was quickly dismissed. The army had simply suffered too much. In particular, the Austrians had lost a lot of officers. The capture of their headquarters and so many staff officers had seriously hampered von Melas's capabilities. Realistically, their only option was to run. It made the most sense to head east, where they could link up with reinforcements and take refuge in a network of strong fortifications in central Italy. But remember, Napoleon had made it a priority to cut off von Melas's lines of retreat to the east, and had already seized a number of strategic roads and bridges in that direction. The French were coming from the west and north, so that left south as the only feasible option, towards the Mediterranean Sea and the port of Genoa the same choice Messina had been forced to make months earlier. If they fell back to Genoa, the Austrians would almost certainly be bottled up in the city they had so recently besieged themselves, a bitter irony. 
Of course, with their British allies controlling the sea, their stay in Genoa would be nowhere near as hellish as Messena's. But the idea of being placed under siege was still far from appealing, and it would leave the door open for Napoleon to advance through northern Italy towards Vienna, just as he had in 1797. Worse, with the faster French army so close, retreat would mean abandoning the baggage train, which included much of their heavy equipment, supplies, and a lot of the personal wealth and possessions of the officers. There was one other option, but 18th century notions of honor demanded von Melas and his officers consider it only as a last resort. Negotiation with Napoleon. But even in these straits, the Austrians could not bring themselves to offer their surrender, even a conditional one. Instead, they decided to propose a 48-hour truce. This would be sold to Napoleon as an opportunity for both armies to tend to the wounded and bury the dead. But in fact, the Austrians hoped two days would be enough time to put some distance between the two armies and slip away to safety. Bonaparte saw through this scheme immediately. He told the Austrian envoys he was unwilling to make any agreement without territorial concessions. Napoleon knew how badly the Austrians had suffered the day before, and he could read the tired, downcast expressions of these two messengers. Their proposal was clearly a sign of weakness, and he would capitalize on it. Rather than wait for the envoys to relay his demands back to their leaders, Napoleon dispatched Berthier with a huge entourage of staff officers to ride out under a flag of truce and negotiate with von Melas in person. Amazingly, this group was able to bluff their way through the Austrian lines and saunter into the enemy headquarters unchallenged, unannounced, and unexpected, which probably tells you something about the state of the Austrian troops. The French immediately made their presence felt, deliberately acting as loud and boisterous as possible, heartily congratulating their enemies on a well-fought battle. This was all calculated. Berthier and his entourage would try to cajole the Austrians into accepting Napoleon's terms with an overly friendly backslap. Before anyone could speak up to stop him, Berthier had the old, frail von Melas alone in a room, negotiating for the fate of the campaign. A member of the Austrian headquarters staff remembered with disgust, quote, This is the moment when the excess of my patriotism, my enthusiastic love for the army in which I have the honor to serve, does not allow me to pass over in silence the inexplicable conduct of the staff officers of Commander-in-Chief von Melas. These gentlemen retired to their apartments, leaving this respectable old man, with his morale as shaky as his physique, prey to the astuteness and arrogance of the French negotiator. In such a decisive moment, everyone went his own way and asserted the egotistical principle of not interfering with anything and not having to answer for anything. Having always the charming proverb in their mouths, I wash my hands of it, end quote. Clearly, he was disgusted with his fellow officers. They knew that in his weakened state, their commander would almost certainly cave to the French and sacrifice the army's honor along with most of the hard-won gains of the previous year's fighting. But no one lifted a finger to stop it from happening. Presumably, they knew this was the army's best chance, however shameful it might have been. As always, Napoleon's terms were absolutely merciless. He demanded all Austrian forces fall back east of the Mincio River, 
effectively handing all of northwestern Italy back to France and her Italian allies, and returning to the pre-war status quo. This was a lot to ask, even taking into account the scale of the victory at Marengo. It was just one battle. The Austrians still had fresh troops nearby. Much of the territory Napoleon was demanding was still garrisoned by Habsburg soldiers, including Genoa, which had only been in Austrian hands for two weeks after a long and bitter siege. Even with his army weakened and vulnerable, von Melas tried to hold out for better terms, but Napoleon would not budge. By the evening of June 15th, the day after the battle, representatives of the French and Austrian armies signed the Convention of Alessandria. Von Melas had his ceasefire, but was forced to accede to all of Napoleon's demands. Once again, Bonaparte's uncompromising, maximalist approach to negotiation had borne fruit. The night of the battle, it was obvious Marengo was a huge victory for the French, but it was still unclear whether or not it would be decisive. You could make a good argument that the status of decisive engagement was not achieved on the battlefield, but at the negotiating table. Bonaparte hoped the Convention of Alessandria would provide a preliminary framework for a lasting peace, as had happened at the end of the first Italian campaign, when the temporary ceasefire he negotiated in the Treaty of Leoben had turned out to be the blueprint for the subsequent permanent peace treaty between Austria and the Republic. Napoleon had set out from Paris in April hoping to win a great victory and force the Habsburgs to the negotiating table under favorable terms. He had achieved both, and his only remaining goal was peace. He sent a letter to the emperor explaining as much. Quote, I implore your majesty to put an end to the misfortunes of Europe. It is from the battlefield of Marengo, in the midst of suffering, surrounded by 1,500 corpses, that I beg your majesty to listen to the cry of humanity. End quote. He blamed the war between France and Austria on a misunderstanding, brought on by, in Napoleon's words, English cunning. The very next day, June 16th, Napoleon left the army to return to Paris. He had only spent just over a month in Italy. On his way back, he stopped in Milan to make a triumphant entrance into the de facto capital of northern Italy. Ironically, there are hundreds of paintings and prints of Napoleon entering Milan in triumph, but Bonaparte made several famous entrances into the city, and most of these depictions show the first one made during the first Italian campaign. But as you may remember from past episodes, the real-life event those artists depicted was quite underwhelming, perhaps even a little embarrassing for the French. Napoleon himself had not actually been present, and very few Milanese turned out to watch the French enter the city, motivated largely by morbid curiosity rather than enthusiasm. However, this time, Napoleon actually got the reception his propagandists had invented for him four years earlier. Thousands of Milanese crowded the streets and squares to get a glimpse of the victor of Marengo. The degree of popular support for France's Italian sister republics is open to debate, but it seems that in Milan in 1800, some significant portion of the population was happy to see the Habsburgs gone once again, and a return to republican rule. Napoleon stayed in the city for a week. Ostensibly, this was to aid in the re-establishment of the government of the Cisalpine Republic, but he also had personal reasons to dawdle in Italy. 
Shortly after Marengo, Bonaparte attended a concert by the famous Italian opera singer Giuseppina Grassini, a dark-haired 27-year-old beauty who was infamous for her wild social life. Napoleon had met her before during the first Italian campaign. In fact, during that first meeting, she had actually propositioned him. But in 1796, Bonaparte's romance with Josephine was still new and in full bloom, so he gracefully declined. Four years later, things went differently. The morning after the concert, Napoleon's aides found the first consul and Miss Grassini enjoying breakfast together. Bonaparte had political reasons to head back to Paris as soon as possible, but it seems he may have engineered a few extra days in Milan to spend time with Giuseppina. Still, Napoleon couldn't say goodbye. He decided to take her back to the capital with him. To protect his privacy, he ordered Berthier to offer Grassini a job in Paris. Bonaparte bought her a house on the Rue de la Victoire, formerly the Rue Chantereine, the same street where Josephine lived when they were first married. Napoleon's new mistress was a woman he had once rejected out of love for his wife, whose name was the Italian version of Josephine, and who now lived a stone's throw from her old house. You have to wonder if there was some psychological element to this relationship beyond attraction to Grassini, especially in light of Josephine's own affair, which surely still stung him. It seemed Napoleon was smitten, but this romance was fated to be short. Obviously, Josephine did not approve, which was probably some of the appeal for him. She put pressure on Napoleon to end the relationship. And Grassini was a free spirit not the type to be tied down to any one man. After only a few months in Paris, she took up with a musician. Bonaparte, on the other hand, was not the type to be content sharing a woman's affections. And so they broke it off. Grassini remained quite famous, and would go on to have affairs with many other prominent men, including the Duke of Wellington. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So why was Napoleon so eager to get back to Paris that he was willing to cut short his jaunt in Milan with an exciting new mistress? Obviously, as first consul, he had duties in the capital. But why the urgency? Rumors and unconfirmed reports suggested that in his absence, the politicians had returned to their habitual scheming and backstabbing. Bonaparte believed another coup plot would soon materialize or perhaps was already underway. He felt he had to return to Paris to reassert his authority and nip this sedition in the bud. It's hard to assess the degree of truth behind these rumors. Something was clearly afoot in Paris, but accounts vary wildly as to what exactly that was. People in the early stage of a coup plot act with subtlety, always careful to preserve plausible deniability. They don't take notes on their conspiracy or commit their plans to paper, certainly not with Fouché's spies around every corner. This much is clear. 
Once Napoleon left Paris, senior politicians began discussing the question of his successor. On a certain level, this is quite understandable. There was a real chance Bonaparte might be captured or killed on campaign, and with so much power concentrated in the position of first consul, and so much of the regime's legitimacy resting on his personal popularity, if something were to happen to him, a dangerous vacuum would open at the top. Perhaps a vacuum big enough to swallow up the whole government, and plunge France back into anarchy. This was a serious weakness in the consulate system, and it certainly did need to be addressed. It's possible these discussions were entirely innocent, and limited to developing a contingency in case the worst happened. It's also possible that these discussions were a cover for something more sinister. Perhaps some people in these conversations hoped that once a successor was chosen, they would eventually move on to discussing other scenarios in which Napoleon might be replaced. We have no way of knowing what may have been whispered in these meetings, or what unspoken intentions may have lurked in the minds of those who took part. According to the Constitution, if Napoleon died, Second Consul Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès would step in. But as we've discussed in past episodes, Cambacérès didn't really fit the mold of a national leader. Many felt they would have to look elsewhere if they needed to fill Napoleon's shoes. Minister of Justice Lucien Bonaparte felt he was the natural choice, and immediately began asserting his power, trying to imply that his brother had privately designated him as successor. But it seems few believed him. Joseph Bonaparte took the direct approach, and wrote his brother a letter asking Napoleon point-blank to name him next in line. Napoleon didn't respond. The non-Bonapartes in the government were divided. Some supported Cambacérès. Others favored Minister of Defense Lazare Carnot, who had proved quite competent over his long career, and had military acumen and support within the army that Cambacérès couldn't hope to match. Napoleon seems to have believed there was something threatening going on, or perhaps he saw any discussion of succession as inherently dangerous. Either way, his victory at Marengo and swift return to Paris brought the matter to a close. Nothing ultimately came of this incident, but it illustrates how weak his regime still was, and showcases a glaring weakness in the consulate constitution. The whole system was tailored to have a strong man like Napoleon at the top, ruling with unchallenged authority. You can't keep a spare strong man just waiting in the wings in case something happens. Bonaparte exposed himself to risk by going on campaign, and as we'll discuss in a future episode, he was the constant target of assassination and kidnapping plots, often backed by the significant resources of Britain or royalist emigres. It really would have been a disaster for the regime, and for France, if anything were to happen to Napoleon. But there was no way to plan a contingency for this possibility without threatening Bonaparte's power, and thus undermining the government. This was a potentially catastrophic flaw in the system, and there was no clear or easy way to address it. With these momentous events in Italy and plots in Paris, it's easy to forget that there was also a whole other theater of the war. As Napoleon marched over the Alps, towards the fateful encounter at Marengo, there were around a quarter million French and Habsburg troops squaring off in southern Germany, where most observers believed the war would be decided. 
The German campaign of 1800 is a remarkable story, and would almost certainly have gone down in history as one of the most memorable campaigns of this era, if it wasn't so totally overshadowed by the drama in Italy. Republican forces in the region were commanded by 37-year-old General Jean-Victor Moreau, a former law student who had joined the National Guard during the Revolution. Despite a total lack of military training, he showed an incredible aptitude for soldiering, and rose rapidly through the ranks during the War of the First Coalition. That is, until a naive mistake nearly cost him everything. In 1797, Moreau's commanding officer was discovered engaging in traitorous correspondence with royalist émigrés. During the subsequent investigation, it became clear that Moreau had some knowledge of this, but had failed to report anything to Paris. He was ultimately cleared of any wrongdoing, but the incident left a cloud over his career. Ironically, Moreau was a sincere, committed Republican, but he now had a reputation as politically unreliable, which he was unable to shake. Moreau's obvious talent and disaffection with the Directory made him an ideal candidate for recruitment into the Brumaire conspiracy. He played a key role in the coup, as arguably the second most significant military figure after Napoleon himself. His reward was command over the Army of the Rhine. As they planned the coming campaign, Moreau vehemently opposed Napoleon's proposal to take the Army of Reserve into Italy, to the point that he threatened to resign if the plan was carried out. Bonaparte only barely managed to talk him down. Moreau and his army would have an important role to play in the next campaign, even if the main theater of operations would be Italy, not Germany. If the Austrians were able to advance into southern Germany and Switzerland, they would be in a position to threaten Napoleon's rear while he faced off against von Melas, potentially catastrophic for the French. For Napoleon to be successful, Moreau would have to protect the Alpine passes, and put enough pressure on the Austrians to prevent them from sending reinforcements into Italy. A relatively limited mission. Moreau had much grander ambitions. He would ignore Napoleon's orders, and pursue his own plan for a bold, lightning offensive towards Vienna. Moreau began the campaign with a series of quick, complicated thrusts into Habsburg territory. Every time the Austrians attempted to make a stand, they found themselves already outflanked and were forced to give up ground. On May 3, 1800, Moreau finally brought them to battle, winning a convincing victory at the Battle of Stockach. It was this victory which gave Napoleon the breathing space he needed to launch the famous march over the Alps. Moreau could have stopped there, but instead he prepared to invade Bavaria. But a major obstacle stood in his path the city of Ulm, an important strategic location on the Danube River, protected by extensive modern fortifications. He had no intention of allowing his army to be bogged down in a slow, costly siege, or throwing away the lives of his men in a reckless assault on the walls. Instead, Moreau skillfully drew the enemy away from the city, and inflicted a crushing defeat at the Battle of Hochstadt on June 19th. The French captured a huge number of supplies and prisoners and the Habsburgs were forced to abandon Ulm. The victory at Hochstedt came only five days after Marengo. News of the two battles reached Vienna at almost the same time, hitting the Austrian high command like twin hammer blows. By the time the ceasefire went into effect, Moreau had stormed into Bavaria and occupied Munich nearly unopposed. 
That's nothing but a brief thumbnail sketch of a very complicated series of events. But way too many histories of the Napoleonic era ignore Moreau and his men, so I felt we should give them their due for a brilliant campaign. It's worth mentioning that Moreau and the Army of the Rhine never once came as close to disaster as Napoleon did in Italy. Neither the famous march across the Alps nor the victory at Marengo would have been possible without these hard-fought battles in southern Germany. General Moreau felt Napoleon overlooked his contributions. Perhaps this isn't surprising given that he violated Bonaparte's orders and even outshined him to a certain extent. But this perceived slight left a lingering bitterness, which would have consequences down the road. I think we'll leave things there for now. Next time, we'll see Napoleon continue his quest for peace through victory. Until then, thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.